Welcome to Her Legal Global. I'm your host, Faye Gelb. Our podcast is dedicated to providing you with actionable skills to empower your legal career. And today we're welcoming Alina Trigub, who's here to talk to us about wealth creation through a real estate side hustle. Alina is the founder and managing partner of Samo Financial. It's a boutique private equity firm specializing in helping a select group of people passively invest in commercial real estate. For over seven years, Alina has been an equity partner in various multifamily private placements nationwide. Her business motto is articulated well by Warren Buffett's quote, someone is sitting in the shade today because someone planted a tree a long time ago. Her passion is to teach others how to build wealth. Lena's interviews and quotes have been featured in many publications, including, but not limited to, Go Banking Rates, MSN Money, Idea Mensch, and many others. She has also been featured in the 60-minute startup book. Welcome, Alina. It's great to have you here. Hey, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Today, we're going to be talking about wealth creation through real estate. And although you deal with commercial real estate, a lot of these principles are applicable to just buying an ordinary house. So as we go through it, we can keep that in mind as we talk about the different things that you look at and assess in making the decisions around this. So let's just talk a little bit about what is wealth creation through real estate and how did that all come out to be? How did you get involved in this? Sure. So wealth creation in general entails several things. First of all, it entails that that someone who already took care of their loans, if they had any loans and that they have their budget figured out, they have the emergency fund figured out, and they are now at the point where they are generating income by investing in various things. Most people start investing by investing in Wall Street, stocks, bonds, mutual funds. So real estate is another vehicle that allows people to diversify out of Wall Street into something that a little bit more recession resilient. So you've said that you've looked at your income and expenses, your loans are paid off, you've got your budget, which is allowing you to save money, and you're in this process right now of gradually building. Correct. So when we start with real estate investing, we can invest passively. So can you just tell me a little bit about that? For some people, active investing is the way to go and they are ready to dedicate uh, all the time that they have available a lot of time to investing and looking for investments, uh, buying projects, renovating and working on them and managing tenants and so forth. But for other people, uh, whether it's because of their busy business or busy career or busy personal life, passive investing is the way to go just because they either don't have the bandwidth or don't want to do it actively. And that's why they choose to passively invest in real estate, which can be absolutely done through syndications. And what syndication entails is that group of people put the money together to invest in a large commercial project. And within that group, there are a few people that are active investors that are called general partners and the rest of the group are passive investors or limited partners. General partners are the people that do all of the work and passive investors or limited partners are the folks that put their funds in and just watch their invest go. So you you can be an an active person, but it sounds like in order to do that, you really have to know what you're doing. So most people enter this as a passive investor? 
I would say it's one of the natural ways to enter into uh, the syndications. You enter as a passive, you watch um, other active investors do it. Uh, you educate yourself, you learn it, you get a coach or a mentor or partner with someone who has the experience and the track record and you start doing it yourself. But yeah, you, you wouldn't be able to start from scratch without any experience or education or backup. So would you say if somebody's bought and sold houses and renovated them, would that be a good enough education or would they really need to expand it in order to get into syndication? They would really need to expand it because when they're buying houses, they're either putting their money or maybe they have a partner or two. In a syndication, it's typically quite a few investors and it's a securities regulated industry. So in order to enter into the SEC regulated industry, you really need to know the, the laws and you really need to follow them and you need to understand what you're doing and you need to have a track record or have a partner with a track record that you can rely on when executing this project to make sure that you're compliant with the laws and you, you, you know what you're doing. And besides that, single family versus uh, apartment building are two completely different asset classes. While I'm not saying one is easier than the other, they're just very different. So you need to learn how to operate a completely different asset class, whether it's apartment building or storage or something else. So tell me, why is it important? You talked a little bit about you know, how people go into Wall Street I think it's important to have a well-balanced, well-diversified portfolio. And while Wall Street investments are commonly available to anyone and everyone, and most people do it either through their 401ks or IRAs and whatnot, or directly by opening up brokerage accounts, syndication investments are not commonly publicized. And for a reason, they're called private equity because everything is more or less kept private. And in order to find that, you either have to have the network of friends that are doing it, or you have to be at a level where you're surrounded by people that are also doing it, or, or you need to be researching, like I was doing the research and extensive research until the point that I came across syndications. And I didn't know what I was looking for. I just came across the strategist started digging into it, researching, and I realized that this was the strategy for me. And I took action, started investing as a passive. And, you know, after doing that for a, a long while, I, I then opened up and started my own company with the desire to help other people. But bottom line here is in order to build wealth, you have to have diversified portfolio. So in addition to Wall Street, you want to have other type of investments. And real estate is a great opportunity, not only from diversification standpoint, but it's also a great investment from a tax perspective because uh, it gives you the tax savings that are not available through Wall Street. And what happens if you do it properly in terms of building your wealth? What can you expect? You can expect residual income. It's not going to make you a millionaire overnight. It's a very long way. And, and again, people that want to make millions and do make millions, they typically put a lot of sweat equity into the projects, regardless whether it's real estate, it's anything. They have to put a lot of time and sweat equity and, and work into the project to make a lot of money. Same here. For someone who is active, it, it's definitely a lot faster way to get to their first million. But for someone who is passive, it's a great way to generate that passive income without any interruption to your day-to-day -day life. And what often gets in the way? You talked a little bit about the fact that you researched and came upon it and learned about it. So can you tell me what gets in the way? Uh, what gets in the way from a standpoint of passive or active investor? Both. 
Well, so from standpoint of passive investor, life gets in the way. They maybe they just starting out to learn about syndications. At the beginning, they need to take their time and really put the effort and to learn what a syndication, how does it work, what type of asset classes they want to invest in, and then learn about different markets and learn about operators and decide which operators and which markets they want to you know, go with and invest. After that, once they chosen the, the operators and they know what asset classes they're investing, it becomes a lot easier because once they see the offering from a particular operator, they just need to review the offering and decide whether this makes sense for them or not. From a standpoint of an active investor, there are many more obstacles that can get in the way. And that could be when they're looking for property. For instance, right now, a lot of markets are oversaturated. So it's really hard to find the right investment for yourself. So there's a ton of competition. It's also a lot of times it's also hard to find the right property management company to manage your project, especially if you're going to like tertiary markets or even some secondary markets because property management companies tend to be in the larger metro areas, number one. Number two, if it's an established company that already manages a ton of units and you come into them with a 20 or 30 unit and, and they used to manage 100 or 200 units, they're probably not going to take you or they will offer you an astronomical rate. You may end up with a smaller less experienced operator, someone who just started out and may not know all the ins and outs of the property management and the local law. So that could be an obstacle. There could be obstacles such as natural disasters or COVID can happen. I mean, who would have thought that COVID would happen? That, that's a huge obstacle. And what did we do? For instance, when it comes to apartment investing, and showing uh, rentals, eventually we were able to move a lot of showings online and things that are more accessible online. You can complete application online, put your deposit in online and do as many things as possible online. Other things that may not be done online, for instance, uh, when it comes to maintenance, you can't virtually repair a toilet, for instance. You need to send send the maintenance person. So what we did initially when the COVID just started, we were only sending the maintenance people in for real emergencies. Whatever could wait a month or two, we told people that they would have to wait. But bottom line, you know, that there are always obstacles on the way. And, you know, if you haven't had experience with one or another, you just uh, need to do the research, reach out to potentially other operators, talk to a property manager and find a way to overcome this obstacle. So let's just talk about the whole concept of doing this and developing a skill related to this. So it sounds like we're going to have a number of players that are involved here, not just the actual building and, you know, making a investment in it, but we're going to need to be able to have a management. And also when we talked earlier, you were telling me about how when you go in, we want a return on our investment. And often that involves getting a property that needs to be increased in value through renovations, that type of thing. So let's just walk through that. Some of this is also applicable to non-apartment building type of investment. So let's go and look at the opportunity. How would we know if we were dealing with somebody that they have actually done the right assessment here of the market? What should they be looking for in terms of the property and the value it should have? Sure. So before looking at the property, we need to look at the market overall. When we're coming into the market, we need to access the market from a standpoint of a specific asset class. And let's, let's take our apartment building as the easy one or as something that most people are used to. When we're looking at apartment building, we need to see uh, where it's located. Is it close proximity to the major metropolitan area? Does it have the whole infrastructure in place? Things like airport, 
major employers. Who are those major employers? Are those major employers are there to stay in the area and not going to be replaced by the next Amazon? Are there places like hospitals, large colleges and universities nearby? Do people have easy access to highways so they can commute to their jobs? If the area is on the path to progress, if the population is growing and the jobs are coming in, and employers are pretty strong and are there to stay, then it proves that this is a good location and that's the market where you want to have your apartment building. And then, then you look at the fundamentals. What is the vacancy? What is the vacancy for the building itself? What is the vacancy for the area overall? If the building vacancy is a lot higher, if it's slightly higher, it's fine. But if it's a lot higher, then the area presents, then you need to determine what are the reasons behind it? Why is it a lot higher? What's missing in this building? Is it an area that's only on the path to progress or is it already a merged area and maybe just amenities are not supporting the market fundamentals? So if you come in and you renovate apartments and make them look good again and maybe add washer and dryer, then people will start coming in because that was uh, the, the two missing appliance pieces that people want it, things like that. Then you decide, okay, so you decided on your value add strategy. I'm going to get, uh, I'm going to add value to the building by renovating units, maybe by changing the roof, maybe by adding the pet park outside. What are the numbers behind it? Are the numbers supporting this purchase? Can I buy the building and with this type of financing that's offered by the bank and with this renovation plan and can my investors and I still make money? If all of it, all of these pieces come together and the numbers make sense, then you decide, okay, this is the project I want to go in. And then you decide, do I have the right team in place? And then you start thinking about your team. And let's say you, you worked with two partners in the past, but uh, none of the partners, let's say, has, um, I don't know, construction background. So maybe you want to find a partner with a construction background, or if, if it's not a partner, maybe you want to hire like a general manager that will oversee your projects to make sure that the construction and renovations are going as for the plan. So you, you make those decisions based on the plan that you proposed and based on what's available. So a couple of questions. So when we're looking at doing this improvement to this building, where are we trying to aim in the market? Obviously, we don't want to be the highest priced building in the area, but at the same time, we want to have some room for economic growth. So what would that be? What would that Absolutely. look like? Absolutely. Yeah, no, excellent question. So we would definitely want to make sure that we are staying somewhere in the middle. We don't want to be on top of a market, but we would definitely want to, first of all, look where our current rents are versus the market. And if we're way below the market or on the bottom of the market, then that gives us an opportunity to increase the rent. And then we compare what is it that we can do to improve our apartments to obtain, let's say, a $100 rent hike. And, and you do that cost comparison analysis and see what it translates to in terms of renovating the unit. Maybe it, it involves just renovating the kitchen only, or maybe it involves renovating the whole unit altogether and to get that $100 hike. Because $100 hike in a different market may mean different things. It all depends what market, what area you're in, and who is your target tenant demographic. So let's talk a little bit about that target tenant. We're looking basically at a middle class, the blue collar. What are we looking at in terms of the type of place that we would want? Obviously, we're looking for renters. So who are we generally targeting within that realm? 
you are basically referring to the workforce housing. And typically, it's in terms of the amenities that these people are looking for, they want to have access to the laundromat. They may not necessarily need the, the pet park, but they want to have parking in place. They may potentially want to have units that have some storage place as well. And they want to have areas where there's a playground so their kids can go and have a playground. And as long as those amenities are on offer and the units are in a good condition and you have the maintenance personnel that's readily available and can come based on the requests within 24 to 48 hours, then those are the type of amenities and type of services that the tenants would do. When you were talking earlier, you talked a little bit about there's three different types of markets. So can you just explain those a little bit to us? Sure, absolutely. So there is primary market, there is secondary market, and then there is tertiary market. Primary market is essentially a large city such as New York, Chicago, LA. Typically, these are an overpriced, they offer very low cap rates, and we tend to stay away from those cities. Then the second type of market is a secondary market, which is smaller in size, very close to the primary metro areas, uh, markets that have their own infrastructure. In some cases, they even have their own smaller airports, but they definitely have hospitals and schools and uh, and whatnot. And the third type of the market is tertiary market. These are typically tiny, small towns, maybe with 600 people, 5,000 people, very small in a lot of cases they don't even have their schools in place and they share school system they they may be sharing other services with other towns they're just not big enough to have their own infrastructure and they are typically located further away from the primary market and again it's not a set rule uh, but uh, in, in a lot more cases than not that, that the case. So our goal is typically to stay within secondary markets because number one, they're close enough to the primary market. Number two, they have uh, enough infrastructure and enough access to the primary markets and enough population to support our goals and to be able to find the projects that are suitable, that uh, we know that the area will, will have the enough supply for the demand that will be So when we're looking for that demand, we're about 60 miles within the primary city? Yep, exactly. Okay, so you've got all this upgrading that you're going to be doing to the building, and it sounds very strategic. You've gone in and you've made an assessment and you've looked at specifically what you need to upgrade to get that return. Is there a specific return percentage that you look for in order to take on a project? We have a range and, you know, without going uh, into the details of the range for uh, compliance reasons, typically we, we look for something that makes sense uh, for the particular time and year and where we are, you know, with the economy and everything else. And for instance, at this time around, we're all expecting presidential elections uh, in the United States. So that's a huge economic factor and that's going to make an impact on the U.S. economy and real estate in general. So we try to take those kind of things into consideration when making the decision and when deciding what kind of returns we can expect, plus the area itself, as well as the asset classes and uh, the surroundings. So you mentioned that COVID had a huge impact. Can you just tell us a little bit about what kind of strategy would we or should we be looking at right now in terms of how do we go forward from here, especially with a volatile type of situation like the election that's coming up? What is some of the steps that we can take to understand it and prepare as we go forward? 
as a savvy investor, number one, you should decide what asset class you want to invest in. And then once you know the asset class, you need to look at the economy and what's going on. And just like at the good times, you always have to look at the supply and demand. What are the areas where there is not enough supply or there will never be enough supply but you know that demand is and always will be there when it comes to apartments again those would be the, typically the areas where the jobs keep going a very good example would be taxes for instance we have a number of apartment buildings in dallas Fort Worth, houston area why because that's where the jobs are going the climate is great a lot of millennials are moving there and there are no income taxes there. so those are all the pretty attractive factors which means that if the employers are moving there as well, which they do because it's a lot more economical than being in, let's say, New York or Chicago, the people will be moving to, to get those jobs as well. With the unemployment pretty high these days, a lot of people are willing and able to, to move just, just to get that job. What about climate? How does that impact these types of decisions? Like, should we be looking at more of a warmer place, colder place? What do we need to look at there? So climate is always personal preference, but, you know, typically folks that have been in a colder climate are looking to go into warmer ones. And while the most common trend is for people that, that are getting older to move into warmer places, more and more folks uh, that are in colder places that have been stuck at homes, again, during COVID, are now looking to move into warmer climates so they can at least enjoy the outside and their surroundings and not be stuck inside for 24-7 without any access to fresh air. So COVID has definitely made that impact on a lot of folks moving from more expensive places and colder places into warmer places for the reason. What about the impact of people now learning that they can work from home? How does that impacting this whole rental market? Because it would seem that people now have the whole concept that they don't actually need to live that close to the primary. I would say a lot of companies, especially the larger ones, uh, went online and are staying virtual and remote. Uh, but there's still significant number of employers that uh, would want to have their employees in the office working together, collaborating. And I, I think a lot of folks that are stuck at home are also missing that human factor, human interaction. I believe the impact is a lot higher on the places, uh, on the companies that had expensive rentals, like in the large metropolitan areas. Like I say, a lot of companies are moving from New York, some are moving to New Jersey, some are deeper um, into the suburbs. The companies that had uh, economical uh, leases and were not exactly uh, heavily hit by expensive leases and empty offices are still maintaining their offices. And uh, in addition to that, there are quite a few companies that are supposed to have their employees in the office due to the regulatory laws. So that's another thing that we could be looking for when we're looking at this type of investment is really thinking about the market and where it's going and what's been happening. And that's a really good point about these types of businesses that would actually need to continue on with the type of space because those people are going to have that continued demand. So just tell me, we did touch on it earlier, but just some of the expected results you can see. You said it's kind of a long-term aspect in terms of your wealth. How long-term is long-term? Our typical project length is anywhere between 5 to 10 years. 
We may decide to sell it in seven years, so we may decide to sell it in two years. The main idea behind it is if it's a value-add project, you need to be able to add value. Once we were able to add value, let's say renovate the roofs and renovate all the front entrances, and maybe we didn't need to touch the units, maybe we just um, redid the parking lot and added the storage units on the property. Once that's all done and once we were able to force appreciation for the building through these renovations, if we decide to sell or if by chance a buyer comes into play and offers, makes us an offer we can't refuse, then by all means we'll, we'll sell it. But the reason the underwriting is made for five years is to give people idea as to what their expectations may potentially be if we were to hold it for that time. Those are the type of returns that you would be seeing during that time based on the underwriting we've done. And that's what we want folks to understand, that these are our expectations and these are just projections. Nothing is set in stone. This is not black and white. And the main thing there are still risks involved. This is still risky. It's probably not as risky as Wall Street, but uh, real estate, just like everything else, is a risky investment. And I always want folks to um, be educated and to understand what they're going for and make sure that they know that this is an investment and they may lose it altogether. Well, you've certainly laid out a lot of the different types of considerations that people should be taking into their minds as they go through this process, though, and that has been extremely helpful. All these principles are applicable as you go into a market, even for a single dwelling house. You can be looking at the same type of things because you obviously want your house to increase in value, not just have it as a place that's going to be your primary residence. Thanks, Alina, for coming on today. I think this has been a foundational podcast where we can use this information to inform our decisions when we're buying residential property, as well as using it to begin to explore the idea of syndication and using it to create additional wealth. Thanks again. For Legal Global, empowering and transforming us through skills and shared wisdom. For other great episodes, follow us and be sure to check out herlegalglobal.com for a community, informative skills-based articles, and to work with me, your host, Faye Gelb.